you're at a place you just discovered. And being an American Express Platinum card member with Global Dining Access by Resi helped you score tickets to quite the dining experience. Okay, chef. You're looking at something you've never seen before, much less tasted. After your first bite, you say nothing because you're speechless. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your dining experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Want to get a little more from every sip? Smartwater Alkaline doesn't just taste crisp and pure. It's loaded with everything you need to perform at your best whether you're running marathons or boardroom meetings. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smart Water Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hello, Max. Welcome to the program. Since no one's going to ask me, I'll just tell you who's on the show this week. It's Sam Knight. Sam Knight is uh, a writer for The New Yorker, but he is based in London. He writes a, a series, I guess, for The New Yorker about the UK. That is what he covers for The New Yorker, but he also just wrote a book. It is called The Premonitions Bureau, and it came out of a New Yorker article. Wait a minute. Is this book kind of like about psychics? It's psychic adjacent. It's about a guy who, in the 60s, got very, very interested in premonitions, particularly premonitions of something very terrible that was about to come. And so he ran an experiment using the Evening Standard newspaper in London and asked people to tell the paper when they had a premonition. And the hope was that if they got enough people, they'd be able to head things off and warn people of impending disasters. And I will not spoil it for you guys, but here's the thing I will tell you, a disaster that he could not foresee is what came. Wow. Is this a true story? True story. It's a true story. Evan, this is a nonfiction podcast, <laughs> in case you haven't picked that up over the last decade, sir. But Sam has also written all of these quite eclectic stories. I'm sure there are ones you remember. He wrote about what will happen when the queen dies, which was like a story that spread all over the world. He's written about everything from like eyeglasses to sandwiches to oh. British politics He's all over the place, and uh, pleasure to talk to. Well, I'll just say that that's one of the uh, top-rated galleys I've received this year. I look forward to reading it and uh, listening to this interview. This show, I should mention, is produced in partnership with Vox Media. They help us make it, thanks to everyone over at Vox. Now here's Max with Sam Knight. Hey, Sam. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. What an honor. I feel like um, <laughs> you're the first person I've talked to overseas in quite some time. Oh, well, there you go. Oh, I'm, well, I'm honored to. Uh, well, listen, man, there are so many things I want to ask you about. I've been a fan of your work for a long time. I feel like this could be like some three-hour-long episode because there's a whole bunch of articles in particular I'd love to talk to you about. I want to talk to you about the book you just put out. I want to talk to you about how working for the New Yorker from London works. I got all kinds of questions for you, but here's the thing I want to start. It has nothing to do, well, maybe it does have something to do with journalism and your work. So I was looking around on your website mm -hmm. and, you know, sometimes you can tell like something interesting about people or the stories that they put in their mm. highlighted stories is some mm -hmm. kind of guide to the stuff that they're the most into or whatever. Everyone has their kind of boring, straightforward boilerplate bio but yours, the last line says, I live in East London with my family. I read a lot. I try and be on time. And I have been um, thinking a lot over the last couple of weeks about my own terrible punctuality. I've been five minutes late my entire life mm. to everything. Yeah, yeah. And for you to put forward in such a <laughs> prominent place, I try to be on time. Yeah. I just, I have to understand what your relationship to punctuality is. Why is that there? What is going on with that? Okay, that's really funny. No one's ever asked me about this. Okay, so I try to be on time. It says that for several reasons. The first one, I am basically a punctual person. I do really try to, to be on time. I actually try and get places reporting-wise early. Uh -huh. Like someone advised me a long time ago, just get there 15 minutes early. 
And it was a great piece of advice because if you're like meeting someone at their office or something like that and you just turn up in their reception 10, 15 minutes early, you just kind of sit there, you kind of get yourself together. They're a tiny bit thrown that you're early and you're less likely to be late. Do you know what I mean? It's just a really good bit of like life advice of just get places early. And then the other thing is that I've had my pathetic website for a long, long time. And I feel even now, like the only people that actually look at it are people who I've emailed out of the blue to like talk to them about something. And the, and then it says, I try and be on time. And they kind of like that. So it's funny. It actually, it's kind of a message to people who are like, who is this? Who is this guy? Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever gotten a decent detail out of that? From like a reporting vantage point, like sitting in someone's lobby or something 15 minutes early, has that ever like helped a story? I mean, it's good, like it's obviously going to like depend on the person and the story that you're writing on. But I would say yes, often. Part of the reason I, I asked the thing I've been thinking about the last couple of weeks, basically what happened was I almost missed a flight. Ah, okay. I came really close to missing <laughs> yeah. a flight. And there was no real reason <laughs> for me to be this close to missing the flight. Anyway, it was a very stressful experience. And I was like the last person on the plane. And, you know, my heart's beating out of my chest. I'm running through yeah. the airport. I'm like that guy who's like freaking mm. out, you know, and I, they're like closing the doors. And I'm like, no, 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 don't close the doors. And then I sit down in the, in the chair on the airplane. And I was just like, that was so unnecessary. <laughs> I just could have left the house 45 minutes earlier and none of this stress would have happened. Why do I do this to myself? And then not 24 hours later, I clicked on samknight.net and read that bio and I was like, this is a person who has it figured out. Uh, yeah, it's, um, there's in fact a, a good Mark O'Connell essay for The Guardian about time and his relationship with time and him realizing that he'd become very agitated by time and this was just like awful and he just needed to kind of let it go, which is quite nice. And then my father-in-law steals time. You're five minutes late. He's the person that everyone else is ready and then he steals five minutes which is also a move. He's like accruing. <laughs> totally. He's accruing your minutes and you can feel him do it. It's a real, that's a thing. He's just taking taking that time. Yeah, there was something about sitting in that airplane chair. I was like, I think I'm like a time alcoholic. I maybe just yeah. hit rock bottom yeah. in my own lateness. <laughs> you know, I need to quit. Like I need to go to time anonymous or something. Anyway, I would like to actually start mm -hmm. at your actual start. How did you get, into this specific kind of work. I know you were at the Times of London, mm -hmm. but I'm really interested in how you got interested in this form of journalism, which I'm not sure people listening know is, is just not that prevalent in the UK. No, and I think even, you know, less prevalent when I was getting into it. So the thing that happened to me is that I left university in the UK in 2002 and I got an an internship at like a British TV production company in New York where I had family and it was the first time I'd ever been. I was 22 and I worked on Ali G's first show in the USA and some other like British shows that, oh, were, yeah? shoot, that were shooting in New York that summer. And so I had a kind of, you know, amazing, very hot, very kind of bewildering summer in lots of ways but in which someone said, you know, have you ever considered like going to Columbia Journalism School? And I'd never heard of Columbia Journalism School, but I went up there and had a look and applied and I'm trying to remember the exact chronology, but I didn't get in the first time, but they said try again in a year. Was your application all just like, um, this is my experience on the Ali G show? I can't remember what I drew on, but it wasn't what they wanted. And so then I spent a year in London and then reapplied and was lucky enough to get a scholarship to go there. And then that was the big discovery. So I was, you know, 23, 24, and I just never, as you say, never read any of this stuff and never read The New Yorker. I encountered this, this kind of form for the first time, which is sort of, in a sense, great to discover it when you're like 23, 24, rather than earlier. I don't know. Um, and I went pretty deep. I was just like, this is something I hadn't come across before and I, I really, really loved it. It just agreed with you. I think it did. And I'm obviously like romanticizing a bit, but it was the essays and the books and the writing. I didn't like meet anyone that did it. So I don't think I was sort of in love with a, you know, 
whatever I'm doing inverted commas that no one can see like a lifestyle or something like that it was it was these essays and this kind of way of writing so I, I went to Columbia and then I stuck around in New York for another year and I, I wrote for the city section of the New York Times which is sadly defunct but was staffed by these very experienced I mean, I love them, but slightly kind of like washed up editors who'd kind of done everything on the paper. And now they were editing, you know, 600 word stories about rival video stores or something like that. You know, real neighborhood bits. <laughs> My first kind of serious journalism story was about, you know, birds flying into buildings uh, in Battery Park, which was in the city section. There was a woman at Morgan Stanley who would get to work early and collect up dead birds and put them in her like desk drawers at Morgan Stanley. And so we like walked around in Battery Park looking for dead birds one morning. Anyway, so that was, yeah, that was actually my big break. Yeah. I'm interested in how you got that job. Although now that you tell me the story about the dead birds, there's, there's something even about that story that feels very Sam Knightish <laughs> to me. This is zooming ahead a little bit, but I, I am interested in kind of what catches your eye and how that's evolved. Yeah, it's, I mean, who can answer these questions? I mean, I think that... <laughs> you you have to answer, that's the agreement. Here. You, don't, you don't know how much you just get conditioned by your circumstance, right? I went back to London, wrote, you know, little... I would be like a live blogger back in, you know, this was 2005, 2006, you know, writing news stories for the Times website, the Times of London. So that's just like rehashing wire copy, five or six stories a day, you know, just like whatever that is, like 3,000 words, you know, just just like smashing this stuff out for the website. And I did that for a couple of years. And then I was like, I can't do this anymore. And I just started pitching stories that I just knew no one else was going to pitch. I wrote about Belarus. I spent a month in Mongolia sending stories to the Times of London's foreign desk. I wrote about the International Standardization Organization, which is uh, one of these big... United Nations style polyglot impossible organizations where they used to all agree about the size of a plug and now they agree about like software standards and it's this obscure lobbying place where these things get decided. I got so used to and so probably dependent on feeling like no one else was going to be writing about something that I don't know whether I loved those stories or those stories were the necessary subjects or something like that. You know, the first time I ever wrote, I think, a really straight down the line, obvious necessary piece of reporting was I wrote a profile of Jeremy Corbyn for The New Yorker in, I think it was 2015, 16. And, and that was the first time I'd written like a profile of a politician doing actual stuff. Yeah. <laughs> everything before that was all just available space and that yeah that makes some sense to me that it's like hard to know where the i need to run at the available space stops and where the this is actually a thing that i'm genuinely interested in begins yeah i obviously loved writing about the international standardization organization i had a lot of fun doing that. So, you know, so it's not it's not like I was, you know, dragging myself totally off to, you know. That's a thing that comes through in the in the stories. Like they all seem I mean even even the book too, I mean the book has all, all of this darkness to it and yet there's a, like a lightness in the writing. It's clearly something you enjoy. Even that story about the body of standardization. I remember that article in like it's one of these things that's like this is a thing that I've never thought of before and actually has like a fair amount of influence on how the world works. But also it just seemed to you like you were kind of like, how can this possibly be the way it works? Well, that's very obviously very kind of you to say. I think I do get a real kick out of moments of quiet humor or like human levity, even in kind of inauspicious places or kind of circumstances. I just, I don't know, that really kind of tickles me. I'm writing a, a story at the moment that I probably shouldn't say anything about, not because it's like important or anything, but it just like shouldn't say anything. But like, I was reading a book in the library yesterday about Bernard Berenson, who was a great art scholar in the late 19th century, early 20th century, who was also kind of a corrupt authenticator of expensive art. 
Anyway, he had this secret deal with this huge art gallery, but his code name was Doris. And I just, you know, as soon as you like see that, you're just like, okay, like <laughs> this is not just because like that's a funny thing to drop into a story, but also because like it's human, right? You know, huge art dealers with secret deals between each other have funny nicknames and like we need that. Right, right. So anyway. It's like even if you're playing at that level, you can still kind of be a goofball. Yeah, right. But because we are like we are all it's like, you know, you refer to you refer to my book. I spend a lot of time, you know, looking at the archives of this mental hospital outside Shrewsbury in the west of England in the 1950s and 1960s. And it's, you know, unbearably depressing and kind of deadening place where people had terrible mental illnesses and really weren't being treated for them in any way at all. And yet you read through these archives and there's a huge row about the the hair perming machine and that is i don't know whether that's that's funny but that's the actual stuff of daily life do you know what i mean yeah i find that very necessary to include yeah i mean particularly that mental hospital like that's about as dark a place as you can imagine i mean people were spending their entire lives there the level of care was essentially non-existent everything was filthy everyone was filthy it's a bleak bleak world that you described and what i hear you saying is you also have to find the mundane and maybe sort of funny details even in a moment like that yeah but also like the you know patients were sneaking out to get drunk in the pub and all the socks were shrunk to the half their usual size. There's this amazing bit where, you know, the butcher has like got an attitude problem and everyone's like, ah, oh God, what are we going to do with the butcher? Well, I think what I'm saying is obviously you see that in an archive and it catches your eye, but it's also, it's there. Do you know what I mean? You're not, you know, you're not like selectively adding a mood which isn't there, but there's just a, like an, a constant, you know, rubbing up of kind of, dark and light and humorous or whatever because you know on a good day that's that's what we're like busy weekends are a breeze with american express platinum card 8 a.m wait to board plane in the centurion lounge <sighs> much better 2 p.m grab seats for the game Come on! 6 p.m., book an exclusive reservation with Resi Global Dining Access. Right this way. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to the Centurion Lounge, must-see live events, and exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Life moves pretty fast. Are you drinking water that can keep up? Smartwater Alkaline has everything you need to stay hydrated, no matter where your day takes you. Whether you're pitching a tent or your next big idea, Smart Water Alkaline can help you perform your best. It delivers a pure, crisp taste that makes it the perfect chaser after a big workout. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smart Water Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com. So you get back to London, you're writing for the Times of London. You're looking for the spaces that no one else is going to cover. How do you start writing for The New Yorker? Like, it seems like you were able to get a lot of different jobs and keep moving up. How did that happen? I started writing for the Financial Times Weekend magazine, which is, you know, probably something that doesn't mean a whole lot to, you know, U.S. audience, but... It was kind of a distinctive weekend magazine. It sort of, it didn't publish extremely long articles, but it was pretty esoteric. And I started writing for them pretty regularly from kind of 2007, eight, four, for three or four years. And I had a contract with them and that was great. And it was like three, 4,000 word stories kind of thing. And then I lost that contract during it was kind of the after effects of the financial crisis or whatever and that kind of forced me to I was like in my early 30s to be like okay you actually now need to like summon up the courage to like pitch American magazines and places that actually do this stuff seriously and so I like that you were like 
it's time to get serious about my finances. I'm going to become a freelance magazine writer. (laughs) (laughs) It's time to shore things up. I'm going freelance. I kind of, well, no, 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 no. I mean, I should say my contract at the Financial Times, which I think was to write six stories a year, and they were supposed to be cover stories. I was paid $25,000 for that. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, I was making a living doing other stuff. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, What were you doing to actually pay the bills? To actually pay the bills, I would work two or three days a week at The Week magazine, which I think there's a US version, but it's like a press digest. It's a very nice magazine. It's kind of still a, a good home for people who can... Go. No bylines. No bylines. You just go in there and you kind of condense articles and do reports from around the world and yada 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 and you just do that three days a week turn up in the office not really have to think too strenuously and then do my freelance magazine you know job on the side yeah I worked at the week for eight or nine years so yeah so losing the FT thing made me finally approach American publications and I wrote my first story for Harper's for Chris Cox there which was about Belarus's last pollster you know the government of Lukashenko had kind of got rid of, you know, most voices of dissent and independent polling organizations, but they realized they kind of needed one. Because <laughs> otherwise no one knew what anyone thought about anything, even <laughs> in a dictatorship. So this guy did the market research for, you know, Pepsi or JCB diggers or whatever. And he had this team of kind of anonymous Belarusian women in their 40s and 50s who would just knock on people's apartment doors and say, you know, what do you think of you know, whatever company, but they'd also say, what do you think of the president? And how's your economic, you know, do you feel like life is getting better or worse? And so he held Lukashenko's approval rating. And I wrote a story about him during the Belarusian election in 2010. And did you feel like you knew what you were doing? Yeah, good question. Um, I'm just really thinking about that because it's such an interesting question. Um, did I feel like I knew what I was doing? On some level, I felt confident because it came from that feeling of there was no one else in Minsk who was going to try and write 8,000 words about this election, kind of regardless of what happened and I had Andre, this guy who called me a baby camel. He, that was his like <laughs> nickname for me. I, I, I took kind of comfort from a feeling that I kind of had something to myself. But then on the other hand, you know, like a no. And I can't remember how many drafts that went through. I remember one moment of clarity when I was, you know, starting that obligatory second section with, you know, so Belarus kind of thing, <laughs> sort of looking at this kind of tortured five or 600 words of Belarusian history. And then just having this moment of insight that just like, you know what? No one fucking cares about Belarusian history. I'm going to cut it down to like two sentences. And it was like, and I, and I think the sentences say something like, you know, first Stalin wiped out the intellectuals and then Hitler came and killed everybody else. And that was like a, a, two, <laughs> a two sentence, like history of Belarus. And we're good. And we're, we're good. good. We're good. Okay. That's kind of the, I'm being, you know, unforgivably kind of brusque, but that was a kind of, that was like, actually, that's not what I'm writing about. That's not what people want to read about. It's this, keep going. So I don't know. And I learned, you know, obviously a huge amount from Chris, who's this incredibly surgical editor, and it's funny, I don't know, you know, I've had more than, but certainly like three very significant editors for me, Jonathan Shane in The Guardian Long Read, Chris at Harper's and, and Willing Davidson at The New Yorker, and they all know each other pretty well. But I think I once like made the mistake of describing to one of them how the other one edited and they were like, no, 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 no. You can't do this. It's like knowing how the other one like makes love. I don't want to know. This is icky for me hearing about his memos. Yeah. So there were parts of the sort of form and structure that you were still finding your way through. But again, part of where 
your confidence lay was in I had found something that I know pretty definitively that nobody else has or no one else will invest yeah. the kind of time yeah. that I've invested. Like I'm going to show up so early <laughs> on this particular story that like no one else is ever going to show up this early. Yeah. And then, you know, I, again, I, I usually, when I go through this process, before I talk to someone, I read a bunch of articles and you can start to see these kind of themes emerge, this connective tissue between pieces. And it was hard with your mm. work. There's like an, art dealer fraud story and a guy who hacked soccer clubs and then also like sandwiches just the entire history of the like freshly prepared sandwich market in the uk and the global glasses industry <laughs> and i couldn't quite find the through line because <laughs> the stories are all great they're incredibly engaging and i find them all like very uh, curious you know Many of them are things that I would not, it would not have occurred to me that I would want to read something mm. that long about. And then I'm always very excited to do it. What do you see the through line as? And as a side question, like, how do you find these things? Yeah, so I think, I think we have to be honest and upfront about the commissioning process, right? Many stories that I have done and love doing have been other people's ideas. And they probably didn't imagine it was going to quite turn out like that but that was the starting point and you know some of those ones that you that you mentioned right there the new yorker were interested in free ports you know these like places where you know the international like super rich could can put their possessions and in sort of infinite abeyance and avoid various taxes and they were kind of sort of rolled out in you know places like Luxembourg and Shanghai and Dubai and stuff like that. And the guy who invented Freeports had just been arrested in Monaco. That's how that one came about. They were curious about Ronaldo, the football player. And so you start reading about Ronaldo and you're like, but what about like the Portuguese hacker kid who's just hacked Ronaldo? Do you see what I mean? So, and sandwiches grew out of Jonathan Chanin becoming addicted to British freshly made sandwiches and be like, what, <laughs> what are these things? But, you know, I'll try and be like immodest, but also I think like truthful in answer to your question, you know, Shannon says, what about sandwiches? And then, you know, it just must be something to do with the way that I'm constituted. I then went to the British Library and listened to a lot of oral histories of sandwich makers and like in amongst that there was a guy who used to work at Marks and Spencer's in the early 1980s and he worked in the first department store which was trialing store made sandwiches make them in the morning put them on the shelves as a kind of new kind of product and I was like I need to find that guy and I found him on Airbnb of all places <laughs> like really? yeah I can't remember the like sequence of online hops and skips and so like messaged him about his holiday rental in Lincolnshire and was like I'm actually not here for the holiday rental I'm here for like <laughs> 35 years ago making sandwiches in Edinburgh Marks and Spencers hopefully that's where you know you get start getting the material to sort of make something that's different is sitting in a library listening to oral histories of sandwich makers, is that thrilling to you? Uh, is it exciting? Is that a moment where you're like, God, I love this job? Yeah, I spend, I spend a lot of time in the British Library with books, and they have also amazing audio and oral histories there. And it's normally there. It's normally in there. There's normally a book about it in there. You know what I mean? And then so to, to order up 10 books and just kind of flick through them in the, the reading room there is kind of, I can't imagine doing a story and not, and it doesn't involve that stage. Do you still feel like you are drawn to stories that you know no one else will do? Or is that changing? So I think that, I think that has changed because my kind of, my job has changed. I have a job now and... I think I can say in the, you know, privacy of this podcast that I, I think I got my job at The New Yorker because I was writing about British politics and stuff that was happening here at an interesting time rather than Ronnie O'Sullivan or art fraud or something like that. It was Brexit, not sandwiches. It was Brexit, not sandwiches, yeah. I won't attempt to make some kind of 
lazy analogy with Trump here, but when Brexit happened in 2016, that was a very signal moment in my kind of adult and professional life of being like, hey, this huge thing has happened. It really wasn't supposed to happen. We really didn't think it was going to happen. And it has shown us something that we were just misunderstanding our country and our population. And so I vividly remember when that happened, and I'd just written that profile of Corbyn, actually, of feeling like I really want to write about mainstream British politics in a way that is comprehensible not only to an international audience, but also hopefully slightly more arresting and human than run-of-the-mill British political coverage, which tends to be very insidery and kind of chasing after itself always, according to some agenda of, of, of news telling rather than what's actually happening, if you know what I mean. So I, I did, I definitely had a kind of a moment where I was like, I'm going to spend kind of half of my time doing that now. And so each each year for the magazine, I try and do a profile of some absolutely central, you know, Sadiq Khan, Jeremy Corbyn, Boris Johnson, Theresa May, Nicola Sturgeon, the Scottish independence leader I did her last year, just try and write something pretty central about what's happening here. Is that because you felt a sudden responsibility to do that? Or that it was genuinely where your own interest was taken. It was it was genuinely something that I wanted to understand and know better. And also, I guess, think like, because this kind of journalism isn't widely practiced here, can you bring some of these classic profile reporting methods or whatever mm. to, to bear on some of these subjects? And sometimes it's worked quite well. And sometimes it's been really difficult. Do you assume like a different reporting persona when you're writing a profile of Theresa May or Corbyn than you do when you're um, contacting people through Airbnb to talk about their sandwich history? No, I try and be, I try and go about it the same way. You know, often there's the the same process of bluffing yourself into the situation. You say bluffing? Yeah. You know, you can't just contact a guy on Airbnb about sandwich making and not know about barriers and fillers and you know all the kind of like technical jimbo jumbo of sandwich making likewise you need to like whatever know the names of mps and stuff like that well i want to talk about the book but there's one more story i wanted to ask about which is you wrote this piece about what will happen when the queen dies Mm. that i remember when it came out it felt to me like it was just everywhere (laughs) Was that your experience of it? Yeah, that was, that was, yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's the article that I've written that, you know, most people have read. Did you uh, anticipate that reaction to it? And what do you attribute that reaction to? I think it's a few different things that are difficult to pass. I think that, you know, it was fairly sacrilegious. Yeah. Uh, Like the idea itself was sort of transgressive, even though it's, completely inevitable right well there had been bad versions of that article and that's probably a bit rude but there'd been like short things with a few bits and bobs in them do you know what i mean Mm -hmm. but no one had really kind of gone there and you know i was the story came about because we had brexit then trump was elected and it was kind of the end of 2016 and there were a few of us from The Guardian, Long Read, in the pub. And someone just sort of said in a weary way, like, well, what's going to happen next? And someone said, well, look, you know, the Queen's going to die. And it was like, aha, huh, that is a good point, actually. The Queen is going to die. And I think there had been... Do you remember Evan Osnos wrote that story about a Trump presidency before he was president? Yeah. And then there was, you know, Catherine Schultz's earthquake story there was some excellent speculative but deeply reported stories out there and so I definitely had those in my mind and then I think there was also this thing which I'm really proud of the Guardian for doing you know there was a bit of hesitation about publishing it but like when they published it they were like this is all we're going to publish we're just going to publish an 8,000 word thing 
and there's not going to be like a news story. These are the secret things that we found out. If you want it, read the thing. Mm -hmm. And it was funny. Uh, I would say this, but when I saw other news media picking up on it, I thought their things were way more tasteless than mine because there was no attempt to place this in some kind of historical context or lay out the reasons for doing it. Do you know what I mean? It was like a tabloid topic. Mm -hmm. Something sort of sacrilegious, but also you can't look away from, but then done in sort of the least tabloidy style possible. I think also, and I don't know if I'm making a connection that isn't there. I don't know if you've ever watched one of these like British royal pageantry affairs and I, I guess you, when you want you watch them there'll be American commentary on them rather than British commentary but when you watch these things on the BBC there's this like close muffled British voice going and there go the Coldstream gods with the black bear <laughs> with the black with the black bear skins and the insignia of St Jerome passing as they often do in front of the artillery and the plane trees and it's just this insane babble that no one actually understands. It just sounds right. But there is this kind of mad theatricality and detail about the whole thing. The coffin has a false roof with a little rim so the jewels don't slide off. And that was something that they learned at the funeral of Edward VII. And so I did deliberately like write that story in the language of mm. one of these commentaries to sort of hope that this like hopeless accretion of detail you could just see the artifice of it right i mean it's real that article is kind of probably like 80 percent history 20 percent new stuff the, the overwhelming like majority of information in that article was all from you know these files in the national archives you can go there now and see you know they've got like bits of the carpet cut out from the funeral of george the sixth to show you how to do the carpet right and you know oh yes you know this is a really good bit of purple to use on the edging of the invitations to the accession you know there is this fanatical attempt to organize the occasion but also it's about power and you know and the the survival of the monarchy so they take it really fucking seriously tonight only on disney plus my name is taylor welcome to the heiress tour experience taylor swift's record-breaking heiress tour Swift, the Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Streaming tonight, only on Disney+. Plus. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber. To improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin. Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. It's interesting to hear you talk so much about history and spending time in the library and how the Queen story is 80% history and 20% mm -hmm. new stuff. So many of these stories are really deeply researched and it feels to me like that's really the story of this book as well and i have a couple questions about it but mm. before we do that would you mind just giving the like quick summary of what the premonitions bureau is all about yes yeah, so the premonitions bureau is a story of a really kind of it's a concentrated period of time between october 1966 and the summer of 1968 when a British psychiatrist named John Barker set out to try and capture the dreams and forebodings of the British public. And he came to believe that some people could see the future. And Barker's, you know, ultimate dream was that you could collect people's visions and premonitions on a, on a mass scale and feed them 
into a computer that would then be able to detect like patterns and convergences in people's dreams. And then could you use that to like give an official early warning about, you know, a plane crash or a rail disaster or something like that. And it's a it's a story of this experiment which combines kind of, I guess, British mid-century occult thinking with quite a kind of fevered atmosphere of psychiatric reform and advances in thinking about people's mental health, quite a lot of showmanship. The other person involved was the science editor of the Evening Standard newspaper, sort of so keen to kind of make some headlines and, and sell some newspapers. So it's a kind of coming together of of those things and then without giving like too much away, there's kind of a twist where the two seers, the two percipients who are kind of giving the best predictions to Barker, tell him that he's going to die. And so the kind of the experiment sort of turns in on itself. And I, you know, I would say this, but I hope that that's kind of the point where the story goes from being a slightly zany, unusual experiment to, I hope anyway, something a little bit more universal about mortality and how we process our own experience and our own sense of future and fate and all of those things. There is sort of a pre-twist and post-twist part of the book. They're distinct from each other in a way. And I wondered when I finished it whether both halves independently had changed your relationships to the ideas that are in there. Mm, yeah. Whether you feel more connected or less connected to the idea and validity of premonitions and multiple dimensions and people being able to see things that are coming. And then I was just as interested in <laughs> basically whether spending as much time as you have thinking about what it was like for this person who did fully believe in that stuff to be told you're going to die and you're going to die soon, whether that made you think differently about mortality in your own life. Not not a small question, I understand. No. But I finished the book and I didn't totally know the answers to this. Yeah, I and I'm not sure that I really know the answers to those questions. I mean, this is... I'm not going to dodge these difficult questions. I'll try my best to answer them. I think I should say at the outset that I wanted to write about this experiment and this group of people who were involved as a small, intense bit of social history kind of thing. Like stories about the occult and the paranormal are, it seems to me, very often written with a really obvious underlying agenda to either demolish them or to make you believe in them. And it's actually, I think, pretty rare to just encounter them more or less straight. And when I came across this story and it began to kind of fill out and kind of I could see what was there, I felt like I wanted to take it away from the paranormal writers and write it as a pretty simple account of what happened, just to really only go on what I could find in, hmm. you know, memos and archives and audio recordings and just, you know, I got really lucky with kind of what people had in their attics in terms of letters and postcards and just these these surviving moments of of insight. You know, one of the things that bothered me and worried me for a long time was like, how much was Barker aware of this stuff? Or how much did he... You know, he works in a, a mental hospital. He's got 250 patients, many of whom are, you know, profoundly ill. And he's also doing this these other research projects kind of on the side. Did he listen when someone said, I think you're going to die? Or was it just like he'd heard 25 other crazy things that day and he would just ignore it? You know, I just didn't know the answer to that question until I started coming across pieces of his writing and then a couple of very useful, although kind of tangential audio recordings where I was just like, okay, I have a feel for this person and he was emotionally open and he was messed up by this stuff. And so that kind of gave me a lot of confidence that that part of the story held the depth that, that I thought it 
could. In terms of my own feelings about this, I mean, Barker was this great person to write about because some of his ideas were really nuts and some of his ideas were really good. And a lot of his research was about what we call the nocebo effect. If I, you know, if I give you a inert pill during a drug trial and say, ah, oh, you know, Max, you'll probably be fine. But some people say they get a bit of a headache when they take this. You know, you're like two or three times as likely to report having those symptoms. And in the most extreme circumstances, if someone gets a really like horrendous diagnosis, for instance, a cancer diagnosis in the 1970s, does that make them die much more quickly than they would otherwise die? And mm. that science is 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 well borne out. I was very anxious when I was reporting this book. I'd be like, okay, it's time to talk to a serious neurologist. It's time to talk to a, a physicist. It's time. And it was very gratifying that the more people are kind of deeply versed in this stuff, the more they're like, yeah, no, that kind of checks out. In the sh in the short answer to premonitions, I I don't think people can see things before they happen because I do think that time moves forward in the way that physics says that it does. However. I'm also conscious that I have not had one of these experiences. And I think, you know, I had a kind of working definition of what a premonition was when I was writing this book, which is, it's not just a feeling, it's not just a hunch, it's just not like a sense in the air, it's like you know. Right, right. You know, and you don't even want to know, because you can't know, and no one's going to believe you that you know, but you know, and what are you going to do about it? It's a horrible feeling. And the truth is, people have those sensations, and I don't think they're all that frequent, but... I know from enough reporting and conversations and obviously this writing about this has made people email me them. This happens to people and they don't know what to do with it. There's a fair amount in the book about children and kids having these kinds of premonitions and being able to articulate something quite specific mm. to their parents. And maybe another like thought experiment way of asking that question is like you've got little kids they're in bed now. We're talking in the afternoon, mm -hmm. East Coast time, evening in London. But if one of them wakes up in the morning tomorrow and is like, Dad, I think something terrible is going to happen. Would you be like, oh, shit. Do you want a semi-creepy story? Yeah, definitely. Okay, semi-creepy story. My wife's family live in Cornwall, which is in the far west of England. Um, we go there all the time. And it takes about... It takes about six or seven hours to drive. And we got a lot of young children and the kind of the easiest thing is to drive at night. But often we're really tired and we, we drive and we swap places and yada, yada, yada. And a couple of years ago, it was just before Christmas, we were like exhausted. We were both been working really hard and this drive was coming up and we we're like, oh God, it's crazy to drive at night. But on the other hand, you know, driving during the day with all the kids, it's a nightmare. And... My eldest daughter, Aggie, who's kind of slightly in touch with, you know, other realms. She couldn't keep track of the days. She just kept forgetting how long it was till Christmas. And so my wife drew her like a chart of the days to Christmas. And each one had a little picture on it showing like what was going to happen that day. So she could easily just keep track of where we were. And on the day that we had drive to Cornwall, she drew a car. Okay. And on the morning we were going to drive to Cornwall. Aggie just came down, kind of bleary-eyed, didn't really say anything, and just coloured the whole car in red. Whoa. <laughs> and there were, like, little figures in the car. She just, like, coloured it all in red, right? We, and Polly was like, just let's just take it so easy tonight, do you know what I mean? It just doesn't matter what time we get there. Let's just really drive slowly. And we drove to Cornwall, and it was kind of all going fine, but it was really late, and we were really tired. And then about an hour before we got there there was like sirens you know like and it was like we were pulled over by the cops and I was at the wheel and the cop came over to the door and was like you are just like all over the road you need to stop driving you need to swap places you're too tired you're just like everywhere on wow. the road and uh, there you go. So I don't know whether that, I don't know what. I, don't I feel know. like there's an argument that says that that answers that question in two ways. One is like, it does happen, yeah. but you don't believe it. Yeah. Well, yeah, <laughs> maybe that's where I'm at. Yeah. There's so much to talk about with the book and, and um, you know, I want to um, remain punctual. Mm -hmm. I know that that's a value. Of it yours. is. Yeah. But before we go, there's quite a bit in the book about mortality mm -hmm. and about encountering 
the amount of time you have left mm -hmm. and what you do with that. And I can't leave this conversation without asking you whether spending this much time with someone who is living in that place, trying to understand it, has that any kind of impact on how you think about it for yourself? Hmm. What is the answer to that question? I mean, you know, being very candid, I wrote article version of the book for The New Yorker in 2019. Barker had four children. I got in touch with one of them, who was obviously in touch with the rest of them. And they didn't want to talk to me. They weren't like hostile, but they just said, you know, if you want to do it, do it. But like, we don't really know why you're doing it or like what your deal is. But then when the article came out, they didn't know any of this stuff. Their father died when they were young and they didn't know about the Premonitions Bureau. They didn't know about really a lot of the stuff that I was writing about because it was a kind of central family trauma and they just didn't talk about it and their mother didn't talk about it. And after the article came out, they wanted to meet and to talk and then they started kind of sharing all this stuff. So the sense of... A, because they gave me all this material that enabled me to hopefully write with some, like, detail about this man. Also, with that was a debt or a responsibility to do it with kind of enormous care. So I think, you know, when I was writing the book, I was very focused on, on him. It was important to me to write about this, although it was a book, like other things that I have written about, i.e., with a measure of distance and being conscious of my own, like, subjectivity, but with some of those things that we've talked about, you know, that kind of mixture of kind of the light and the dark in there or whatever. And so, mm -hmm. and maybe this is just me, it's never really crossed over the, the threshold and, and messed me up. Hmm. I think I can say that. That seems so healthy. <laughs> Let's not talk about the unhealthy, yeah. <laughs> Well, there's nothing unhealthy in the book at all. I can't think of anything. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, Sam, thank you for doing this. Look, I've loved it. Thank you so much. It's, yeah, it's, it's, you've asked me some stuff that I've honestly never thought about or talked about. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Gabriella Saldivia edited this week's episode. Susan Peterson handled the show notes. Thanks to them. Thanks to our partners at Vox for helping us put this show out. And thanks so much to Sam Knight for joining all the way from London. His book is called The Premonitions Bureau. It's out now. Go ahead. Give it a read. We'll be back next week on time. See you then. Your last day of vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage followed by a long mud bath then a two-hour nap. Because you're an American Express Platinum Guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through Amex Travel, which means a 4 p.m. checkout. And those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane back to reality. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your travel experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply.